0: The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here, and today I have the privilege to be interviewing Cody Eds. Welcome to the podcast, Cody.
1: Thank you. It's really great to be on here. I love what you guys do. I love your podcast and I'm glad to be a part of it.
0: Well, today, Cody, we're going to be talking about Cyril of Alexandria. But before we talk about him, can you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself as you have not been interviewed on here before?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, So I'm 31 years old. I have a beautiful wife named Amber, uh, two sons, Zechariah Johann Eds and Daniel Warfield Eds. If your listeners are paying attention, my sons are both named after hardest Voss and Daniel uh, or uh, B.B. Warfield. Uh, I have an associate's degree in public communication, a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, and I am finishing up my MDiv at CBTS. Uh, I am a Reformed Baptist and a member at Christ Reformed Baptist Church in uh, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. I'm also a gifted brother there as well with some other really great men. Uh, Pertaining to our topic today, I've been Reading the Eastern Fathers for about 10 years now, uh, that really started with uh, Christostom's sermons. Uh, the first time I read Cyril of Alexandria was about eight years ago uh, in his commentary on Zechariah, which is a book I've been studying for a very long time. Uh, and I've kind of been reading him on and off since then. Uh, it wasn't until about a few years ago that I began a, really a formal study of Cyril's works outside of his, his minor prophets commentary. Uh, my first paper was published uh, in Modern Reformation as based on Cyril's Old Testament theology of the presence of God. My paper in Puritan Reformed Theological Journal was largely based on Cyril's interpretation of Zechariah. Uh, my most recent publication at CBTS's blog was on mentorship in the early church. And I used uh, Cyril as a, a fine example of what mentorship should look like in the early church. I'm also, uh, I am also work for Greystone Theological Institute which um, the, really the mode of theological work and study at Greystone is largely influenced by the Greek fathers like Cyril and especially uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. So it's sort of the cultural environment uh, in which I do a lot of my daily work. So, you know, I see myself as a, an amateur researcher. I'm not a scholar. I want to make that clear. I'm an avid student of Cyril, the Greek fathers, the Eastern fathers. That's part of the reason um, today I'll be reading a lot of Cyril. Uh, your listeners are probably going to be listening and going, "Man, he's just reading a bunch of Cyril today." Uh, well, I'm not a scholar on Cyril. The, you know, the, the intellectual culture of a lot of Reformed Baptist online and in podcasts today is that everyone's a scholar on everything, right? We we like to hear ourselves talk, and um, you know, a lot of people talk about Cyril, but very few have read him. So, if you're listening and you are thinking, "Man, he's just he's reading a lot," um, well, I'm not a scholar, and you should read Cyril. For yourself, anything that I might say about Christ or the Trinity or Scripture and theology, um, I can assure you that Cyril definitely says it better.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Well, with that biographical sketch of yourself, um, let's transition and begin talking about Cyril himself. And if you would, just please give us a a biographical sketch of him.
1: Yeah, uh, so... Very little is known about his early life. A lot of what we get, we can kind of just patch together from other sources, as well as sort of what the the norm was at that time in Egypt and and Alexandria. Uh, We do know that he was born in 376 AD in a small town just uh, outside of Alexandria. Uh, When he was seven years old, his uncle, Theophilus, became the bishop of Alexandria. Uh, It's most likely that Theophilus sort of oversaw Cyril's education from this point. Um, We assume, again, we don't really know this uh, entirely for sure, but we assume given the time and the location that Cyril got sort of a normal education of that time, right? Classical literature, philosophy, rhetoric. Uh, He shows himself to be very well versed in Aristotelian logic and categories throughout his ministry. Uh, I highly recommend uh, Hans van Loon's uh, "The uh, Diophysite Christology of Cyril. Uh, he's got a couple chapters on Cyril's use of uh, Aristotelian categories, and and really shows Cyril's education in his early life. There, uh, his uncle Theophilus sent him to spend five years in the desert of Nitria with, um, you know, uh, the desert some of the desert fathers like uh, Isidore, Peliseum. Uh It's you know, again, we don't really know this for sure, but it seems that Cyril, from some of Isidore's letters, that Cyril was Isidore's disciple in that time. Um, and he was there for about five years. Um, afterwards, he was mentored by Theophilus, his uncle, and made a reader in the church uh, at least as early as 403. Um, and when Theophilus died in 412, uh, Cyril was appointed the new bishop of Alexandria. Uh, his Bishopric can be ordered really by controversies and commentaries you know where Augustine like answers controversies with mostly doctrinal treaties right not to say that he doesn't write you know commentaries and sermons He preaches often but Cyril really answered the the doctrinal controversies with commentaries on scripture and so the first half of his bishopric is taken up with controversies with uh, Judaism this is from 412 to 424 so it's about 12 years uh, this is where he most likely wrote uh, most of his Old Testament commentaries. Um, and he's really seeking to prove that the Old Testament uh, scriptures are Christian scriptures, right? Uh, one of my favorite quotes of Cyril he says, uh, It is the intent, it is the intent of inspired scripture to, indica- to indicate to us the mystery of Christ through innumerable objects. Someone might compare it to a magnificent and illustrious city which does not have just one image of its king, but very many set up everywhere and visible to all. I mean, this is really the central thesis of, I would say, all of Cyril's uh, bishopric, but really that those early um, that early half, that 12 years there. He writes two separate commentaries on the Pentateuch. Uh, one is the Galafra that's been published in English, um, showing Christ in the Old Testament, and the other one is, is um, sort of showing application, right, the Christian life. Um, it's not been translated into English. He writes uh, three volumes on the Minor Prophets, four volumes on Isaiah, three of which have been translated. He writes commentaries on most of the Old Testament during this period. Uh, his commentary on Romans and other Pauline epistles seems to be from here as well. And then you get into um, his second controversy within his early years, which was with Arianism and really uh, Unomius. Um And this is 424 to 428, so it's just four years. And this is where he writes his Trinitarian treaties, right? Um, so uh, he writes two massive tomes on the Trinity, the thesaurus and the dialogues on the Trinity, neither of which have been translated into English, uh, sadly. He also writes a commentary on John, which is extremely famous. It's probably one of the greatest uh, commentaries, theological commentaries ever written on the Gospel of John. It's, it's massive, uh, two volumes as well, uh, recently published. Um, and then you, 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 you kind of, uh, we hit this, this dividing mark, right, in Cyril's life. So you have these first 12 years, and then you have the second half that really starts off at 428 with the controversy with Nestorius. Um, and I highlight here, you know, the controversy with Nestorius is five years. Um, that's it. It's just five years. It's 428 really to 433. You can include the 10 years after. He's kind of consolidating orthodoxy really the heart of it is just these five years here. He writes, you know, on the unity of Christ, the Scalia, on the Incarnation, letters and tomes against Astorius, and then we have the Council of Ephesus, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And then in 433 to 444 until his death, he's really consolidating orthodoxy. And he gets back to writing commentaries. So he has these five years in Astorius, right, where he gets really starting to write on the unity of Christ and, and his letters, and handling all of that issue. And then once that ends, he goes back to writing commentaries. He writes commentaries on Acts versus 2 Corinthians. He writes a 43,000 word uh, commentary on Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's massive. And uh, we also see him finishing uh, his uh, apologetic book uh, against Julian, which is also um, a really, really big task that he seemed to have worked on throughout uh, his ministry. Uh, finally, Cyril dies on June twenty seventh, uh, four hundred forty four A.D. He's sixty eight years old, so he has over forty years of service. Um, you know, to kind of put that into perspective, uh, I mean, Augustine's ordained in three ninety one, uh, and dies in four thirty, so thirty nine years of service. I mean, they both are sort of working alongside in this in this sort of same uh, time frame, but also the same extended period. Um, and you know, given Augustine's influence in the West, we, we have so much more um, Augustine um, than Cyril. And uh, one of my, you know, dreams, one of my tasks, I, I would like to say, is to sort of recover uh, the importance of Cyril. And so it's it's helpful uh, for us to divide um, Cyril this way because it highlights that the Nestorius controversy, it's only five years of a very long 40 years of service. And if there has been retrieval of Cyril, it's regarding Christology, which is very important, I, I think, especially as Reformed Baptists, we're going to be dealing with Christology very soon, um, if not already, right? I think that's right on the cusp of what we're dealing with in controversial issues. But five years of a 40-year-long service, writing commentaries, books on the Trinity, apologetic works, I mean, he's massively important for Christology. I don't want to you know, undermine that or or look past that, um, but Cyril is so much more than just a crystallogian, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about today.
0: It's clear from even just the biographical sketch and and what you talked about before we even started recording that you're a fan.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: of um, Cyril. Yeah, and, absolutely. And not everyone agrees with you. Um, uh, <laughs> not everyone is as big of a fan as you are. In fact. Mm -hmm. In The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, he refers to Cyril as the tyrant of Alexandria, describing him as a ruthless politician and dogmatician. What factors contribute to him painting Cyril in this way? And how would you respond and how would you like to present perhaps a contrary picture to that? What type of picture would you like to present?
1: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's just massively important. Um, The Gibbon thesis, as it's become known um, among scholars, um, it's the most influential opinion of Cyril. In fact, uh, you know, Schaff, he does that uh, anti nicene and post nicene father set, right? The big famous set. And Cyril's not included in that. And many believe that Cyril's influence in the modern church today is so low because he was not included in that set along with other Greek fathers like Chrysostom. And the reason he's not influenced, many believe, is because of Gibbon's thesis here. Uh, the reason that Gibbon holds to this view, why most do today, unfortunately, is that Cyril was a bit of a politician. Um, you know, political maneuvering, though, uh, in the church, using leverage with the emperor, uh, this was completely normal at this time, especially in the East. So when Cyril does it, it it's not like he's doing something a tyrant would do. Uh, secondly, a lot of violence. Um, surrounds Cyril, right? The violence against Jews by Christians during his reign that many blame him for, the violent killing of Hypatia, of course, a very famous uh, Alexandrian philosopher. And then, thirdly, the Nestorius um, controversy. Uh, Cyril is painted as being very shrewd, cunning, uh, sinfully wrathful towards Nestorius, these sorts of things. But Gibbon's thesis doesn't really hold a lot of water. Uh, Cyril was a politician, but again, every churchman was. There, there's nothing. There's nothing particularly immoral about his use of politics at this time. Um, as for violence, um, you know, the Jews in the early days of of, of Cyril's bishopric, um, you know, they, they were the Jews were very violent against the Christian Church, and Cyril warned them. He told them that that the Christian Church and the Jews in Alexandria can live in harmony. Um, And that very night, the Jews attacked and killed many, many Christians. So the next day, Cyril and uh, Christians, fellow Christians, run them out of the city. Uh, Now, this doesn't justify his treatment of them at all, right? It's still violent, still terrible, but it does put it in its proper context. Cyril saw himself, good or bad, really seeking to protect the church as he saw it. Um, after this this terrible murder of many Christians um, then Hypatia's murder I mean um, Cyril never even uh, sanctioned uh, her murder he wasn't even there some accounts the have him nowhere even in the city at the time of Hypatia's murder now where Cyril did overstep into sinful actions um, such as his reaction to the Jews right uh, can really be seen as a a sign of young uh, immaturity, if we could say it that way. Um, again, this doesn't lessen the sin. Um, I'm not trying to just sweep that sin under the rug or excuse it. Um, you know, he's often connected to Theodoret's terrible treatment of Christosim, which is uh, one of the darkest moments in the uh, you know, early Eastern Christianity. Um, but again, later, much later on, um, Cyril restores uh, Chrysostom to sainthood um, at the behest of uh, Isidore of Pelusium. Uh, in the early years, Cyril is very much like his uncle, Theophilus. Uh, he's prone to overreaction. Um, you know, his relation to the prefect of Alexandria is very manipulative. It's not becoming of a leader in the church. Um, he does have violent tendencies, and he's often too harsh uh, with his reactions to the Jews. But as Cyril grows and gets older, we see these tendencies die off. Again, Hypatia is murdered in, you know, 512, not at his sanction. He could be out of town at the time, right? He has nothing to do with this, but that's in the first three years of Cyril's bishopric. When we get to Nestorius and Cyril's interaction with him, we see the same Cyril, right? Concerned for the truth of Scripture as Christian Scripture. We see him brilliantly cunning, but he's not prone to overreaction or quarrels with the state and others. He's, you know, uh, you read his festal letters, for instance, and they they span his whole time as a bishop, and they focus on self-control. Um, he speaks of passion as a beast that needs to be starved, but with humility and love for others as you know a feast for the pious soul. And you can hear in these festal letters a very personal note of someone who has overcome and someone who still struggles to overcome sins of anger and immaturity. So... Well Gibbon is in part right yes there is a significant portion of Cyril's um, heart that we can see throughout his ministry where he is with anger um, and with you know these sorts of sins but Gibbon's thesis reflects what I would say a biased understanding of the first three years of, of Cyril's bishopric. That reads that struggle into the rest of Cyril's forty years of service and defines him by that struggle as a tyrant, and he's he's nothing of the sort. Um, You know, I'd even say it's a misrepresentation of a Christian who grew in grace, right, in sanctification. Was Cyril perfect? No. Was he a tyrant? Was he ruthless? Absolutely not. Um, And I think that we just we have to be careful in how we read. Um, men of the early church and, and understand them as fellow brothers in Christ who are growing, you know. Um, Cyril comes into massive power, right? When Theophilus dies. Um comes into massive power. And um it takes time for Cyril to understand how to properly use that power and authority for the good of the church and Christians around the world.
0: Hmm. I appreciate you um elaborating on that and responding to the Gibbon Thesis.
1: Yeah.
0: Nestorius has been mentioned already several times in, in this interview, um, and, and you said we would like we talk about him, and you were correct. Um, we are going to talk about him now. Can you, you tell our audience a little bit about Cyril's engagements with Nestorius? Who was Nestorius, and, and what view of Christ did he, he teach, and, and what was Cyril's response to this and Cyril's views. Yeah, um, so I, I recently taught a, um,
1: a Sunday school at Christ Reformed Baptist um, surrounding the uh, Council of Ephesus and Chalcedon. So if if your listeners want more sort of an expanded understanding of this, um, they can look there. As my pastor will tell you, I always go over, um, and I did, so there's plenty of content there uh, on our website. Uh, Nestorius was the Archbishop of Constantinople uh, from 428 to 431, so a very short uh, time. Um, Contrary to what many claim, Cyril doesn't go after Nestorius. Some monks in Egypt, under Cyril's care, write to Cyril about what Nestorius is teaching. And they seek clarification. Um, And Cyril writes a response to them, uh, which Nestorius gets a hold of, and he loses it. Uh, right Nestorius just is completely insulted and he writes to Cyril um, in response and you know Cyril's letter to uh, the monks is is a fantastic letter Um, I'm actually gonna uh, I've I've got it lined up for a quote at some point in this episode because it's it's such a good um, letter just on the Christian life but Nestorius's response is very 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 defensive Um, and so Cyril writes to Nestorius to calm him down clarify what he wrote And really calls Nestorius to repent, to have a better understanding. And again, in these early letters, um, Cyril is extremely kind to Nestorius. Uh, He opens them with things like, you know, most pious and most God-loving fellow bishop. Uh, He closes all of these letters with, we and those with us greet you with all brotherly affection. Um, But regardless of Cyril's kindness, Nestorius refuses to repent of what he was teaching, so Cyril appeals to the Pope, who says Nestorius is, in fact, teaching heresy. And Nestorius appeals to his friend, the emperor, right, who summons the Council of Ephesus to sort this all out. Uh, what Nestorius was teaching um, is it's complicated. There's a difference between what really Nestorius said and, and, and what he meant. Um, wanting to reject suffering in Christ's divine nature... Uh, Nestorius emphasized the distinction of the divine and human natures to the point that he said that the divine person joined with a human person. So there are two persons. Now, it's a, it's still sort of debated to this day whether or not that's what Nestorius meant. Um, but ultimately, what, what he goes on to say is that uh, this means Mary didn't really bear the son of God in her womb, right? But the person of Jesus, that is, Mary was not the Atokos, right? God bearer. Um, so he wrongly overemphasized the distinction between the natures of Christ into a separation, making it sound like there were, uh, you know, two persons. He even explicitly states this um, at times. So Cyril at the Council of Ephesus um, opposes Astorius, right? And Cyril taught that there were, uh, you know, what we say of the divine nature, right? That, that the divine nature is all present, all knowing. these sorts of things. We say of the one person, right? We say of this of Jesus Christ, but not the human nature nature and what we say of the human nature right that it's suffered we can say of the whole person right that Jesus Christ suffered but we do not say it of the divine nature and so in essence there are two natures in one person without separation confusion change right these sorts of things and so again I want to stress his treatment of Nestorius even at the council is very kind Uh, he sends delegates to Nestorius pleading with him to come to the council Um, and Nestorius refuses, and Cyril attempts three more times, sending delegates every time, and Nestorius just has has these delegates just beat um, outside in in the yard and um, refuses to come uh, to the council. And finally, the uh, Council of Ephesus sides with Cyril, and Nestorius is sent to exile, and Cyril returns to Alexandria. Again, that is massively a summary of what takes place at Ephesus. Um, we, we could have an entire podcast episode just on the drama um, that uh, takes place surrounding that council, but um, we would be here all day. So,
0: Another creed, or rather, definition that Cyril seems to have a, a part in mm-hmm. is the Chalcedonian definition or the Creed of Chalcedon. Mm-hmm. What role, What is that? Um, What is the Chalcedonian definition, and what role did Cyril play and how the Chalcedonian definition articulated its Christology?
1: Yeah, um, so one of the big issues surrounding the Council of Ephesus was what was called the formula of union. So Cyril and John of Antioch, a friend of Nestorius, write this document called the formula of union. It was a way of expressing Christology to unify both sides of the church, right, without supporting the heresy of Nestorius. And many of Cyril's supporters hated it. Uh, they believed that Cyril compromised the truth. But there's peace in the church. There's unity in the church until Cyril and John of Antioch die. Um, I, man, I, I would just highly suggest anyone reading Cyril's letters to read the letters between him and John of Antioch. They are wonderful letters of um, just Christian brotherhood, but eventually Cyril and John both pass away and um, the unity of the church is instantly shaken by a second heretic, uh, Eutyches. So Eutyches wanting to reject any distinction of the natures taught one nature, right? The, the divine and human nature fuse and the divine reality, the, the divine nature really swallows up the human nature. And Eudiches believed that this was what Cyril taught. Um, and he is deemed a heretic, and Eudiches flees to Alexandria, to Cyril's disciple, Dioscorus. Um, and both of them believe, yeah, this is what Cyril taught. And so the Council of Chalcedon is called to settle <coughs> this heresy. Um, and again, that is a massively short summary of how we get from Ephesus to Chalcedon. Um, so Chalcedon's really debating... Did Cyril mean one person or one nature? Uh, Cyril plays a massive role in this council, along with you know, Leo's tome, right, the Pope's letter on this issue. Um, Cyril's letter to Nestorius, uh, I think the three letters he wrote to Nestorius, um, they're read at the council. Um, and they're mentioned as authoritative in the Chalcedonian definition. Um, finally, Chalcedon lands on Cyril's conception of Christ, right? One person, two natures, without confusion, so opposing Eutyches, without change, which is what Cyril wanted to emphasize, without division or separation, so opposing Nestorius, um, as Cyril did. And, you know, I really, I can't stress enough that without Cyril, um, according to our faith, without Cyril, We do not have an orthodox uh, Christology as expressed in the Creed of Chalcedon. They look to Cyril um, and and see him as an authoritative, sub-authoritative to Scripture, but an authoritative source of how to express a proper orthodox Christology. So there should be no reason why Christians today, should not seek to recover Cyril of Alexandria as a champion of our faith, just as Augustine is. And I, and I truly believe that Christology is about to be, if it already isn't, um, something that us Reformed Baptists are going to be dealing with. And so Cyril is, um, you know, we are in desperate need of retrieving um, Cyril and the heritage that our Chalcedonian faith points back to as it points back to Cyril himself.
0: Hmm. I believe you would agree with me when when I say that no good theologian that's that's worth worth listening to um yeah. is completely independent of the people who have gone before him. Yeah. Um or, or separate. And Cyril had some big names that, that came before mm-hmm. him even in his bishopric. Yeah. In what ways did Cyril learn and draw from previous Alexandrian ministers like Clement or Origen or Athanasius? And in what ways did he depart from their tradition?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I, I always like to sort of emphasize that it's, you, you can't understand Cyril apart from his um, Alexandrian context or even the Eastern context context. Like you can't pluck Cyril out of Alexandria uh, as if he's this Western church father and then read him expecting to to read, you know, all of these different things that we get from the West that, um, you know, we just don't really find in the East. Um, and so you can't really separate him from the men who came before him. Uh, so for instance, Athanasius, right? is the big one. Uh, Athanasius baptized uh, Cyril's mother and took care of her and Cyril's uncle. Uh, when they were young um, his uncle uh, was mentored by Athanasius um, and so we should expect uh, to see influence from him and we do. Um, you know Cyril and Athanasius they share a lot of theological emphasis um, they both combat uh, Judaism and the Aryans uh, they both emphasize the soteriological um, they both emphasize the soteriological uh, implications of the incarnation now, when Cyril writes in his dialogue on the Trinity that Christ is you know, a second Moses, he explicitly quotes Athanasius. And he does this throughout his works on the Trinity. Um, I highly, highly recommend Matthew Crawford's uh, Cyril's Trinitarian Theology of Scripture. Uh, but not only do uh, Cyril and Athanasius share you know, theological emphasis, they also share uh, theological content. Uh, Cyril's understanding of theosis um, is... Um, taken from a lot of athanasius um fairbairn's patristic soteriology he's got this article patristic soteriology three trajectories um, highly suggest that Uh, he talks about this um, as does norman russell in the doctrine of deification in the greek patristic tradition uh dr letham um writes on this in his systematic theology as well that cyril's understanding of theosis or deification is in line with athanasius um, You know, both of them teach a more personal, right, rather than mystical theosis. In fact, Cyril hardly ever, if ever, uses terms like theosis or deification. Rather, you know, following Athanasius, he speaks of participation, right? We participate in the nature of God. So influenced by Athanasius, this participation is grounded in the incarnation, right? and It is expressed in Trinitarian language. We, we, we cannot talk about Cyril's Christology as much as we talk about Cyril's Christology. We cannot talk about that without talking about his soteriology. Because that's the whole reason Cyril is fighting Nestorius, right? Uh, God became man, that man might become God. But if God doesn't become man, um, we're in trouble, right? And so, you know, Athanasius, that famous statement, God became man, that man might become God. Um, Cyril almost repeats this, but he expands on it. Um, And and, uh, his expansion is, um, uh, I almost want to say, in a Protestant way. Um, He says, since the only begotten word of God has become like us. Okay, so there's the Athanasius, right? Now, what do you expect him to say next, right? Since the only begotten word of God has become like us, we become like God. He says, since the only begotten word of God has become like us and justified by faith, those who made their approach by grace given by him and sealed them with the Holy Spirit, our resolve has become stable, secure, and unshakable, firm in piety. So this idea is directly taken from Athanasius, but Cyril expands on it. Not just Christ became man that we might become God. Christ became man to justify by grace, to seal with the Spirit, to make us holy before God to to sanctify us before man, that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, As for Origen and Clement, it's far more complicated, of course. Uh, I mean, theologically and hermeneutically, uh, Clement and Origen set the tone for the Alexandrian church, right? So you can't really separate Cyril from their influence. Uh, Cyril's hermeneutic, uh, for instance. He is very Christ-centered and allegorical. But where Origen gets lost in the allegory, if I could say that without angering too many people cyril spends far more time on the history of the text he refuses to make allegorical leaps right without warrant um, in fact he he says uh he says we shall first present the literal events in a helpful way making them suitably clear then refashioning the narrative by bringing it out of type and shadow we shall explain it with reference to the mystery of christ having him as our goal since it is true that Christ is the end of the law and the prophets. So while adopting the interpretive methodology of Origen, Cyril restricts it, right? Much like he does with theosis. He's, he's you know, restricting it and, and basing it, building it off of the literal events, the history in the text. Uh, Cyril explicitly critiques Origen's views and clements on Christian perfectionism, right? He says, we are not vi- victorious over our innate impulses, absolutely. All at once, that is reserved for the life to come. But we can, with God's cooperation providing us with power from on high, curb the excitements of the flesh. He insists on the good of marriage. He rejects Origen's non anthropomorphic God, right? He rejects any form of subordinationism found in Origen as well. And so, in summary, you can clearly see the Alexandrian church getting more and more clear on orthodoxy from Clement to Origen to Athanasius and then to Cyril it's kind of the, the crowning jewel of alexandrian theology you know while it's impossible to understand cyril apart from these others it's it, you know it is foolish to see cyril as um you know anything but the crowning jewel the the perfection if you could uh, you know he imperf- he perfects their imperfections right he Rejects in the case of Origen and Clement their unorthodoxy where it is found. Um, But, you know, Cyril is also called the seal of the fathers, right? Of all the fathers. Uh, There are some evidence that Cyril was somewhat influenced by Augustine. we have him writing letters to Augustine as early as 416 regarding Pelagius. His festal letters uh, to the church at this time reflect this. He Uh, makes explicit mention, he says, By no means will we present ourselves before God any more than a newborn baby brings itself to God. The one who will present us is Christ, who who regenerated us by faith, offering himself as a sacrifice for us to the Father. Uh, He condemns Pelagianism at Ephesus and compares Nestorius to Pelagius, actually. He says basically that just that Nestorius is teaching that by works, the person of Jesus made himself worthy to be joined with the son. So Pelagius taught that by works, we make ourselves worthy to be joined to God. And so there is evidence that Cyril was influenced by Augustine on grace and free will. There's also the Cappadocians, right, on the Trinity and God's incomprehensibility. Uh, both the Cappadocians and Cyril respond to Enomius. Um, you know, Isidore of Pelusium, the Desert Fathers, on asceticism as well you know adopting the asceticism of the desert fathers Cyril really focuses on self-denial in his festal letters like Clement Nor you can't really understand Alexandrian or Eastern fathers apart from the influence of the desert fathers it's it's you know simply the cultural environment of the east at this time Cyril was trained by them uh, like basil and other Eastern fathers and what you read of the Desert Fathers regarding self-control and piety, you read in Cyril's letter, festal letters to the church, um, You know, especially Isidore of Peliseum. Um I mean, hardly anything has been said regarding Isidore at all, let alone his influence on Cyril, but we see his influence. Even in Cyril's combination of allegorical and textual interpretation, his combination of biblical Christology with classical literature and philosophy, Isidore cites a, a passage from the Iliad to illustrate a Christological premise. Um, drawn from Genesis 4.4 4 and Colossians 1.15. As for the Cappadocians, he adopts Trinitarian language of the Cappadocians, right? Uh, he strikes a, a, a balance, though, regarding their um, what could be called apophatic theology. Um, you know, the Eastern Fathers are so necessary for us today, especially Reformed Baptists, as we consider the doctrine of God and have been for many years. Eastern Fathers, and I would say Cyril especially, along with the Cappadocians, really strike a perfect balance in what we need today. On the one hand, you know they are willing to and even encourage speaking of God in uh, Aristotelian and broadly philosophical categories, even making the argument that such language is necessary to express a proper creedal doctrine of God. But on the other hand, they acknowledge that ultimately God is wonderfully transcendent. Right? Um, in the Reformed Baptist world today, you know there are two sides to this conversation. You know, one side is apprehensive of Aristotelian categories for the doctrine of God. And Eastern fathers uh, teach us that we must use this this language of nature, confusion, person, these sorts of things, a philosophical system and categories behind that language if we are to stay orthodox within the expression of the creeds on God. But the other side, us classical theists, um, we, we can be tempted to have an answer for everything, right? A distinction for every little nuance. But the Eastern fathers teach us that we haven't really begun to speak properly of God until we are made silent in wonder before him. You know, Gregory of Nyssa, that famous, you know, only wonder grasp anything. And certainly really strikes a balance between these two schools of thought. And uh, the opening to his thesaurus on the Trinity, he says, What could be as arduous and difficult to comprehend or as hard to explain as a correct account of the holy and consubstantial Trinity? For human intelligence is very weak, or rather totally powerless. And as far as language itself is concerned, it is deficient, already having difficulty expressing what is within our reach. I feel like a lot of us can be humbled by that, right? There is a lot that we do not know and cannot properly express. He says, though, the beauty of truth is difficult to understand. And it's not in its nature to be revealed to a great number but rather to those alone who have searched out its traces with righteous thought and a sincere spirit, those who are able to dig up, dare I say, a heavenly treasure. So like the Cappadocians, Cyril is adamant that only wonder can understand God. Like the Desert Fathers, Cyril is adamant that to understand God not only begins with wonder but must come from a heart that is righteous. So doing theology for Cyril, for the Eastern Fathers, for us today as we do theology and discuss and debate these issues, Uh, doing theology not only leads to holiness, it comes from a pursuit of holiness. It is a pursuit of holiness. And in this way, I think Cyril is not only influenced by his Eastern counterparts, but can serve to influence all of us today as we continue these conversations on the transcendent God.
0: Earlier, when you were giving the biographical sketch you you took note on on multiple occasions how the issue with Nestorius took up a relatively small part of Cyril's life and also you've mentioned before not in this podcast how important it is to read Cyril the pastor exegete Mm -hmm. um can you elaborate on this point that you were making
1: yeah um you know there's as we've already talked about, there's you know, two popular opinions about Cyril. Right? There's Gibbon's thesis that he was a tyrant and everyone should avoid him. Um, but then there's the conservative or orthodox opinion that uh, Cyril was a Christologian and we appropriate him when necessary. Um, but again, Gibbon's thesis applies to the first three years of his bishopric and Christology only takes up about five years of his 40 years of service in the church. Uh, you know, Cyril started his bishopric writing commentaries, and he ends it writing commentaries. And all of these commentaries that he wrote were written for pastors and priests to read so that they would be helped in preparing sermons and homilies, so they would be helped in how to care for their uh, churches. He says, Christ is the brook of delights from which the God and Father has given us to drink. I love that. It's poetic. It's amazing. He says, He is the fount of life and the river of peace, who directs to us, that is to pastors, those called from the nations. Therefore, he says, Pastors are to lead the people and to care for the spiritual sheep, to feed them, as it were, in good pasture, in a fertile place, and to bring them to the most wonderful grass, namely the inspired scripture. For the word of God is life-giving food for the soul. And all of his commentaries, that is his endeavor, to teach pastors how to do this work. How to bring souls who are suffering, who are hurting, who are doubting, souls who do not know God, souls who do know God, right? How, How pastors are to bring souls to Christ, the brook of delights from which the God and Father has given us to drink. You know, Cyril was no tyrant, um, but he wasn't just simply a Christologian either. Cyril was primarily a pastor. He was primarily an exegete. He wrote two massive commentaries on the Pentateuch, one to help pastors see Christ and one to help pastors apply the word. He wrote commentaries on the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Kings, uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the minor prophets, Um, Matthew, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Hebrews, uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, James, 1st John. Most of these fragments uh, remain. They've yet to be translated. Uh, He preached through the book of Luke, which is an amazing um, series of sermons. Um, And he writes all of these before and after the short five uh, five years against Nestorius. And he wrote every single one of them for pastors. He also wrote a festal letter, right, to the church every single year, two volumes of which we have published in English. And each letter lays out the Christian life, the hope of the gospel, It teaches the church, uh, not just pastors, but, but everyday Christians, how to interpret scripture Christologically. And so, you know, even his Christology and, and debates with the stories were pastoral endeavors. You know, he famously said, um, you know, if the Christ is neither truly the Son nor God by nature, but merely man as we are, and an instrument of divinity, we have not been saved by God. And so, you know, I, I always want to emphasize that, especially for pastors, read Cyril. Read Cyril. He spent 40 years in the ministry writing for you, pastor. Writing uh, commentaries, doctrinal treaties for you to know how to care for your sheep. You want to recover classical theism and all of these things. Classical pastoral ministry begins with a recovery of guys like Augustine, right? His sermons on the Psalms and Cyril's commentaries, of which we have,
0: you know, very many. Hmm. With that being said, if someone were or desired to begin studying Cyril of Alexandria, what primary and secondary resources would you point them to? You've mentioned some already, but what are yeah. what are some others?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so uh, primary um, would definitely be his Glophora, uh, volume two on the Pentateuch. Uh, there's two volumes in the Fathers of the Church series, um, and volume one just covers Genesis. Volume two covers uh, the rest of the Pentateuch, and um, it's fantastic. You really get to see... Cyril, the the pastor exegete. Um, In volume one, the the way that he opens it, it's one of my favorite uh, passages of Cyril. Uh, He says, In no other way would any be able to attain eternal life unless by digging up the letter of the law as if for some treasure they should diligently seek the pearl hidden in it, which is Christ. There is nothing equal to such a thing for those who commend the blameless life who seek to perform the greatest and most excellent deeds and to fill their minds with the divine light, than to investigate earnestly the mystery of Christ. This is clearly and manifestly the means of obtaining eternal life and the way for us to attain all happiness. Um, I I can't just, the Galafria, it's amazing. It's just such a fantastic um, set of commentaries. Um, the second volume really shows his typology, his covenant theology regarding the law and Moses. Um, he really gets into law and gospel distinctions um, and um, you know how we distinguish the two covenants, which, um, as I'll mention later, I'm sure uh, he's very much in line with what we would call sixth anti-federalism. Uh, secondly, I would suggest his sermons on Luke or uh, the Gospel of John commentary. Um, his sermon on Luke um, are very approachable, um, whereas the Gospel of John commentary, you can really get bogged down in the theological exegesis. For pastors, um, I would suggest the commentary on John. Um, you know, theological students, the commentary on John, absolutely. But um, if you're just, you know, not wanting to just get lost in Cyril's often repetitive exegesis, um, his sermons on the Luke are clear, they're approachable, um, they're doctrinally heavy, um, but uh, they um, resound much like his festal letters on Christian life. Um, and then that would be my my third suggestion regarding a primary source would be his Festal letters. Uh, you really get to see him as the pastor churchman, um, and you know I would suggest reading these in order. Uh, Cyril's Festal letters can can sort of come off um, with I don't want to say legalism, but um, just uh, you know very um, very focused on the law and Christian obedience, which is good. It's necessary. Um, but uh, taken out of context, a lot of people may read those and go, man, this guy, um, he's really, really heavy. He's really hard. Uh, he's really hard on us. Um, and he is, he's, he, he is, but he, he is as a pastor. Um, and so you have to put those festival letters in the context of his sermons and the other ways that he cares for the church. Uh, as for secondary um, sources, I um, three as well. Um, The big one would be Fairbairn's Justification in Cyril of Alexandria. It's just an article. It's very short, um, but uh, he he sort of starts it off with uh, a T.F. Torrance quote. Um, He says, you know, T.F. Torrance once commented that uh, no one in the history of theology has ever expounded the evangelical doctrine of justification by grace better than St. Cyril of Alexandria, which is a massive statement. Um, and you know, reading Cyril's commentaries on the Old Testament will show you uh, that central to Cyril's thought was justification and law and gospel. And that article proves it. Uh, secondly, Cyril of Alexandrian's uh, Trinitarian Theology of Scripture by Matthew Crawford. I've already uh, you know, mentioned this. Uh, it's expensive, but it is free. as his PhD dissertation online um, and uh, really gets into you know Trinitarian uh, issues there. Um the third would probably be The Appropriation of Divine Life in Cyril of Alexandria by Daniel Keating. This is also very expensive, um, but it is on Scribd. If you guys know what Scribd is, if you don't, you should know what Scribd is, uh, but it is on Scribd. Um, if you don't have Scribd or you don't want to spend the money on Daniel Keating's book, uh, Blackwell's Christosis and Fairbairn's article uh, Patristic Soteriology Through Trajectories um, touch on all of this as well. Now I would say that the most important theological uh, contribution that cyril offers us today in the works that are published in english that is uh, is on soteriology um it is the topic that he writes about the most uh, central to that topic is his understanding as i've already mentioned of participation right theosis and cyril's doctrine of theosis is really a protestant conception of union with christ in fact calvin and vermigli uh, they write letters back and forth on union with Christ, right? And Vermigli asks Calvin, um, "Is union with Christ like what we're teaching regarding union with Christ? Is that what Cyril of Alexandria was was talking about?" Um, and Calvin basically says, "Yeah, uh, he's just using um, you know hyperbolic speech. He's um, just hyperbolic there, um, you know." So uh, even Calvin um, recognizes that that's in Cyril. We have a very early concept of union with Christ as central to a theological system. So, you know, for Cyril, the question is, what did Peter mean, right, by we partake of the nature of God? God's nature is Trinitarian life fellowship. And in our union with Christ, we are brought into that Trinitarian um, fellowship. He says, you know, there is no other way for humanity, being of a perishable nature, to escape death except to participate once again in God who holds all things in existence, and who gives life through the Son in the Spirit. Christ, being life by nature, joined you through himself to God the Father, who is also himself life by nature, thus putting you in communion, as it were, and making you partakers of his incorruptibility. And Keating's book really expands on this. I would also suggest um, uh, Fred Sanders' book, uh, The Deep Things of God, is really great on, on, on this as well.
0: What final encouragements would you like to give our audience concerning the theology, life, and ministry of Cyril of Alexandria? Mm. Yeah. um,
1: You know, I was told about 10 years ago by my first pastor not to base my life on one man, right, but to find 10 or 12 men and emulate them, right? That way you don't just become this picture of this this one man, but you become a well-rounded Individual and I've spent the last ten years uh, putting together a list of twelve men in a confession. Uh, Cyril was one of the first men I added to that list. As I read uh, Luther on Long Gospel, I came back to Cyril on Long Gospel. As I, as you know, Voss blew me away with biblical theology. I picked up Cyril and found him saying the same stuff that Voss and Klein and others were saying. Uh, as I read Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology, I went back to Cyril and found him expounding sixteen and federalism. Uh, You know, as Aquinas helped me understand realism and God's perfections, Cyril again was a guide. I found that whether you're reading on the Trinity, biblical theology, reformed soteriology, even, you know, pastoral theology or poetry, I found myself returning to Cyril again and again. So, you know, I would say to pastors in particular, uh, the content of your ministry is covenant theology. You know, uh, Dr. Malone makes this case in. Uh, the pastoral theology class at CBTS that the content of your ministry is covenant theology. When it comes to law and gospel, when it comes to covenant theology, no other church father has written more on this topic or been clearly in line with our confession. He says, Cyril says, grace was given to Israel, that ancient and celebrated grace. So what is that grace? He says, they were ransomed from Egypt in a physical sense. And they entered the promised land. So this was really the first grace, he says. But in both equality and similarity to the ancient grace, another grace has been given to us by Christ. For through him we are God's heirs. So how does the second grace bear inequality to the first? That which was done for those people in a fleshly or material way, Christ has performed for us both spiritually and immaterially moses was minister and mediator of that formal grace christ is in fact the source of the latter there were types of the reality but what is spiritual properly surpasses what is material i mean that's 69 federalism right there you know elsewhere he says you know if the new covenant is compared with the formal one the difference in the promise will be clear in the one case god promised them the land but the new covenant that is the promise made by christ summoned us through faith to god's sonship, to glory, to incorruptibility, to eternal life, to communion with God through the Spirit, to the kingdom of heaven. Um, You know, I mean, it's almost our confession. And he says, the ministration of the law conducted through figures and types is in a way a servant of the gospel teachings. It's not the gospel. It's a servant of the gospel, dimly portraying in itself the beauty of the truth. Pastors, especially Reformed Baptist pastors, Listen to Cyril. Read Cyril. He is going to give you the content of your ministry, a proper covenant theology, and how to present it, how to preach that in his commentaries. To Christians, um, you know, uh, I mean, and I would really, really highlight that contemplating God is living to God. Doctrine doesn't just lead to devotion, right? It is devotion. For Cyril, the contemplative life, right? The ascetic life of self denial, they're one. To contemplate God is to be confronted with a holy God who redeems in Christ. And so to contemplate God is to deny the self, it is to be humbled. You know, Gregory of Nazianzus famously said, uh, "...hands idle with nothing make idols, right? But hands idle with wonder are full." You want to fight the passions of the flesh, you want to put to death idolatry, study the deep things of God. So, you know, to be a Christian, it's not foremost to be obedient, It's to have faith in Christ. Cyril says, those who have chosen to live the glorious and beloved way of life devised by Christ must first be adorned with simple and unblemished faith. And so then, secondly, they add virtue to that faith. When this has been done, they must strive to enrich their knowledge of the mystery of Christ and ascend to the most complete understanding of him. You should strive to enrich your knowledge of the mystery and beauty of Christ and do so as a pursuit of God. You let your eyes, uh, the eyes of your heart, um, settle on Christ. Starve the beast of your passions, as he says. You know, let virtue feast on the grace and the gospel of God. And Cyril gives us a wonderful picture um, of that grace of God. It's only when we empty our idle hands of our desires and passions for our own glory that we begin to fill them with the wonder of God in Christ and the mystery of the gospel the eastern fathers and Cyril as a seal of the fathers can help us do that you know Cyril shows us what it means to be a pastor theologian bringing Christ and his covenant kingdom to people in need of the joy and beauty of the gospel Cyril shows us what it means to be a christian coming to Christ again and again for the grace to be forgiven, the grace to be made holy. He sets before us not only the way of you know ascetic dying to self, but he sets before us the God who is life, inner Trinitarian life, a life fellowship that in Christ we are brought into as we are made partakers of the divine nature. For all the terrible things that can be said of Cyril, and that has been said of Cyril, from you know his harsh personality to his tarnished legacy in his disciple Dioscorus, what we have in Cyril is a pastor theologian of the highest order who spent his life exegeting scripture in a covenantal law gospel and redemptive historical way for the sake of the church in need of the Christ of scripture to set before our sin-struck souls the beauty and wonder of our triune god and to walk us through as he says that magnificent right and illustrious city which does not have just one image of its king but very many set up everywhere invisible Cyril is our guide to that city, the standard in my mind of a confessing Catholicity that is you know, at once uh, uh, meticulously biblical and philosophical in its expression of doctrine and pastorally awestruck in wonder and humility as it seeks to faithfully and charitably express that doctrine. You know, like I said at the beginning, we, Reformed Baptists, have an online presence where the loud voices aren't kind. And where the strongest 1689ers seem to know everything about everything, and so they wish to speak at all times on all things. But Cyril of Alexandria gives us a way forward in how to do theology for the sake of the church, right? And the charity that the gospel and our confessional and creedal heritage calls us to. And for that reason, I commend the Eastern Fathers, and especially Cyril of Alexandria, to my Reformed brothers, especially my confessional Baptist brothers.
0: In this episode of the Covenant Podcast, I have had the privilege of speaking with Cody Eds on Cyril of Alexandria. Cody, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your time, and just the studies and the fruit of your studies of this fellow brother, our older brother in the faith, Cyril of Alexandria. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. Peace 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 and peace. Base and peace. Peace and peace. Base peace and peace. Base 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 and peace.